It's good to be able to gather here this morning as God's people. Let me just order stuff from this morning. Um, uh, in, um, I won't read you Psalm 59. In uh, 397, um, Monica was married to Patricius. 397 BC, that's not uh, the street directory. Um, and her son describes her mum's efforts to um, win her husband for Christ. This is what he wrote. AD, sorry, AD. It is AD. Sorry. That's all right. Glad at least someone's listening. Uh, Monica um, uh, wrote, uh, sorry, let me say, this is what was written about Monica. She served him as a husband. She did all she could to win him to God, speaking to him of God through her conduct, by which she made herself beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for the Lord. So that's what Augustine wrote about his mother. And I think it reflects someone who's read the first six verses of 1 Peter 3, at least, and he's working hard to put them into practice. And it also represents someone who had the joy of seeing their husband converted as a result of their godly living. I reckon Monica would have found 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, quite challenging. And I reckon we do today. See, over generations, these verses, we'll go verses 1 to 7, have been used by godly wives and husbands for great strengthening of their marriages. Let me tell you also, these verses have a terrible history. A history that has caused lots of sadness and lots of hurt. They are verses that have been misused and abused. And they are verses that have condemned people to lives of misery and dullness that have destroyed their marriages. There's the two extremes to the way these verses have been used. So it's a bit of a caution that we're going to seek to unpack them today and apply them to us today. Before I do, if you're not a wife or a husband and never will be, then this passage is really not aimed much at you. In fact, you'll be thinking, and what's it saying to me? But it is saying lots to you, even though it's not aimed at you. If you get a good understanding of the way husbands and wives should live and love, you better pray for us. And you better support us as husbands or wives as we do this, seek to live in godly ways, for we need plenty of help. And if you're never going to be a husband and never going to be a wife, this passage will help you understand fuller what God's word says in the area of marriage relationships. So you can be clear what marriage is about and the relationships within marriage should be like, and so you can speak clearly about it because this passage is very misunderstood by churches and the culture we live in. So with all of that in mind, let's pray Let's pray for God's spirit and his word to do its work in us. Our Lord and our God, as we gather here this morning, we pray that your word, a word which some of us might find hard to hear and our culture certainly doesn't understand, but we pray, Lord God, that your word and your spirit will do its work in our lives to grow and strengthen marriages in our church and to grow and strengthen the witness of the gospel in this world. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. 
I remember reading from a passage similar to this from God's Word in a parish I was at many years ago, and the pianist uh, at the church in a small country town uh, piped up a very loud stage whisper of the sort that everyone can hear and says something along the lines of, you don't really believe that, do you? You see, as we talked about a wife submitting to a husband, that was very culturally offensive to her. And that was in the country 20 years ago. Imagine how culturally offensive that might be for people today. She was appalled to have the words wives submitting to their husbands read out in a church service. I think I understand what she's on about. And I think our society, I understand why our society is so deeply appalled with words like submit in the context of marriage. I'm aware how hard these verses would be hard to hear for uh, a woman who's had them used against her. They might have been used against her in her own relationships or they might have been used against her in relationships in general. But none of those reasons are a reason for us as God's people just to get out of rubbers or our marking pens and, high, uh, and blank them out. So I want to begin this morning by looking at what are these verses not saying? Because sometimes it's good for us to see what they're not saying so that we can hear what they are saying. Wives, these verses don't allow your husband to force you to do something that's illegal. That is something that's not lawful in our society. These verses don't allow your husband to force you to do it. And, and by the way, wives, neither do these verses allow your husband to do something that is, to force you to do something that is immoral. Because part of your submission is pure living. So you don't submit to immorality trying to get purity in living. In fact, here's the crunch, wives. Um, these verses don't allow your husband to force you to do anything. You see, submission is something you offer your husband. It's offered from a position of strength, not a weakness. Submission is not something you can ever demand from your wife, husbands. Otherwise, that's called coercion or blackmail or manipulation. So wives, whether you're a present wife or a future wife, these verses are never to be used as a weapon against you. And whilst I'm on the topic, husbands, present or future, these are not verses you ever really get to quote at your wife. And you certainly never quote them to get her to obey you, and you never use them as a weapon against her. You see, if you demand submission from your wife, it makes it very hard for her to submit to you and increase your level of godliness. Because normally you're just being selfish when you're demanding submission. So, blokes, this word is for you as well, not just for your wives. It's worthwhile pointing out that these verses don't take away any legal or biblical recourse a wife might have if her husband breaks the law, if he's violent or maybe if he commits adultery. You see, these verses are not verses that force a wife to become a doormat to her husband. And they're not verses that force a wife to cover over his immorality or his illegality in offences. For example, the most loving thing a Christian wife who is subject to domestic violence could do is simply to report her husband to the police. Have him held accountable 
for his actions. And as you do that, keep showing your husband love, the appropriate love that he needs as he's held to account and maybe as he undergoes rehab. You see, these verses are not doormat verses. There's a few more ways this verse is a bit misunderstood and I do plan to highlight them on the way through so that we can get a better understanding of these verses in their original context and help us apply them to us today, but that's a good start. So I've mentioned what these verses are not saying, let's now do the more positive thing and look at what they are saying. You need your Bibles open, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 6, a word to wives. Let's look at verse 1. This is a word to wives or potential wives who are Christians. And note very clearly this is not a, ver- not a uh, word to wives who are not Christians. This is not the standards that society must operate under. This is the standards God's people should operate under. It's a word to Christian wives, especially if their husbands are not converted. But let me tell you, it's also a word to Christian wives, even if their husbands are converted. Blokes, that is, you who are husbands or maybe potential husbands, make sure you don't switch off because this word is to your wife. It's also a word to you, as you'll see. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Note that very clearly. This is not a call for you to submit to every male that comes your way. And blokes, you need to make sure you've made note of that as well. Wives, remember, your husbands cannot demand your submission. This is something that you submit, you offer to your husband, especially if they don't follow Jesus, but even if they do, because your offer of submission to him can win him over to become a follower of Jesus if he doesn't yet do that. The Bible says if you're unmarried and a Christian, of course you should marry Christian people. And this passage is not saying you can marry whoever you want to and it doesn't matter. But wives, if you find yourself married to a non-Christian, then this is a great word, great passage to read. Uh, Rarely do I meet a Christian wife who has a non-Christian husband who doesn't desire that their husband gets converted. It's something that's often on their mind, even if it's not on their husband's mind. And it's something they often want to speak about to their husband, but they can't always do it. Maybe they've been gagged. Don't ever speak to me about that Jesus bloke. Or maybe they've already spoken and it seems like there's been no impact and they recognise that there's a limited number of times that you can encourage your husband verbally to find out about Jesus and choose to follow him. And so for wives in this position, this is a wonderfully liberating passage, isn't it? You see, as a wife, you can choose to submit to your husband and seek to win him over without using words. Win him over with your godly behaviour. You see, the wife of a life lived in a... Sorry, the life of a wife lived in godly obedience to Jesus is very winsome. It's very attractive. And the attraction is far more than just simply skin deep. Wives, remember you are not called to submit to your husband's illegal and immoral lifestyle because that will never lead to, an impu- need, will never lead to a purity of life. So the passage is not encouraging you to do that. 
And so the passage is not encouraging you to abandon Jesus because your husband demands to, demands that you do. So we need to understand the passage in context. But you may well come to a passage like this with a very tainted or negative view of submission and, and, and all of us need, might need to reprogram our thinking as we think through what is biblical submission. It is not you being a doormat. It's not you enduring a beating or a verbal tongue lashing and pretending that everything is nice the next morning. We need to see submission as something you offer from a position of strength. Something you offer from a position of strength that's driven by your relationship with God and your desire for your husband, Christian or non-Christian, to become or to continue walking with the Lord. And when we read a passage like this and we struggle with it, we need to understand its broader context. In fact, this passage comes in a bigger context of a whole pile of people, husbands and wives, male and female, submitting to people in all different sorts of situations. We're not going to go back and recount what we've looked at so far, but we need to understand this is not uh, Peter picking on wives. This is about living as God's people in a world that's very broken that needs to know Jesus, as I'll remind us at the end. So wives, in verse 3, it says that your beauty should not come from your outward appearance. Now, sadly, but probably not unsurprisingly, this is one part of the passage that has been misunderstood, to think that women should, or wives, should dress as blandly or as plainly as possible. Uh, and it's been used to say that jewellery and fancy hairstyles are ungodly for Christian wives to have at all. In fact, at one stage in church history, some sort of legalistic moralism drove the church to think that a wife shouldn't have anything aesthetically pleasing on her clothing. And so all of you ladies who are married who've got jewellery on and been to the hairdresser this month would be now thinking, am I a godly person at all? This is not a passage that says you need to go and buy your clothes from Bunnings and not Meyer. <laughs> I think there's nothing wrong with that, but my wife may well do. You can go down to an op shop and buy something that's cheap and immodest if you would like. And the Bible certainly says that's not a good idea. The legalistic moralists would claim that you cannot have your hair done at a... At a uh, in braids, you cannot wear jewellery and you cannot dress in fine clothes and so it's worthwhile that you know what the passage really says. In the Greek, it does say, wives, you should not braid your hair but it doesn't rule out all the other hairstyles that seem to exist these days. I think there's only one hairstyle and braided hair wasn't one of them but I do believe there's plenty of other things you can do with your hair other than braid it. And so if you're going to be literalistic with the passage, you'd only rule out one particular hairstyle. It says you're not to wear gold jewellery, which doesn't rule out pearls, silver or diamonds. And even funnier for the legalistic moralist, this passage in the original Greek, Greek lady says that you're not to wear clothes at all. Which of course would make them very confused about a whole pile of other problems. And so, let's understand the passage in its context. What is it telling us to do? Wives, what is it telling you to do? Don't seek to whiz your husband over with flashy outward clothes and hairstyles and jewellery. 
You can get dressed. You can wear jewellery. And you can go to the hairdresser. But that is not where your beauty should be found. You see, all those other things are just skin deep, aren't they? And there's only a limited amount of skin deep changes that clothes, hairstyles and jewellery can bring. And if that's where your value is worth, if that's where you're going to attract your way, you're going to attract your husband, one day there'll be other things that might attract him. What God loves is a change that's deeper than your skin. And that brings a far stronger witness to the truth of the gospel and the goodness of following Jesus. That's what the passage is saying. It seems to me that women in our culture today are much like the women in the culture of first century Christians and you have a huge pressure on you to focus on your external appearances to impress the blokes. But the radical impact of the gospel is this. It can change you from the inside out. Flashy outside adornment looks good. It's loved by society. It sells us cars, furniture and household bricks. But it's really shallow, isn't it? The real inner changes, the ones that will be noticed by your husband that would cause him to think, I wonder what it is that makes my wife value and live that way. That's something that's far more winsome to the truth of the gospel. That is the inner change that should take place, that should be driven by your desire to serve and glorify God. And it's good to know, ladies, that once your husband is converted, you don't resort back to flashy clothing and all of those other things as the way that you get your beauty, because even Sarah followed the same with her Christian or her God-serving husband, Abraham. So this is a passage to what Christian wives with non-Christian husbands, and it's also a passage to Christian wives with Christian husbands. And before I want to move on, I do want to quickly raise a few of those inner characteristics that the passage mentions. Purity and reverence, verse 2. Gentleness and quiet spirit, verse 4. Now, they might not have been on your top four characteristics that you were seeking to achieve as a Christian wife or husbands. They might not have been on your top four characteristics that you were looking for in your wife. Because sometimes we think of characteristics like this as boring. These are the sort of characteristics that sound like you've got to stay at home and do crochet. But let me... (laughs) Let me tell you, that's, yes, I, I can understand that. Um, th- that's not what this passage is saying at all. And you might have noticed from Proverbs 31 that that lady basically ran the house and a business, raised her kids and ran the world. You see, godliness is not being idle. Reverence, purity, they are not lock you in a closet 
so that nothing contaminates you. Gentleness and quiet spirit is not chained to the, I don't know, the dishwasher. You see, we can approach those characteristics with all our negative stereotypes, but that's not what the passage is saying. Look at, look at Proverbs 31 to see what a godly wife might look like. And ladies, if you looked at Proverbs 31 and thought, strike me lucky. We're not looking at that today. I'm not planning to unpack it in detail. But you don't have to be up 24-7, just in case you noticed. You see, these verses, purity and reverence, gentleness and quiet spirit, at least can give you some direction of which direction you should be going and what you shouldn't be going. You can't be cantankerous or bitchy. You can't be divisive or grumbling or gossiping. In fact, just, just broaden it out a bit. Purity is all about godliness, isn't it? These verses are not encouraging any sort of ungodliness in you. They're encouraging godly transformation in your life as you seek to obey the word of God. Husbands, I hope you've been listening so that you may know what to value and encourage in your wife, what to support and what to desire. And husbands, if you criticise your wife for her haircut or an outward appearance, make sure you're running before you do. Listen well to what godliness as a husband should be like. Well, verse 7 addresses blokes, husbands in particular, and potential husbands, with a passage. One verse... And idiots have decided that six verses to women and one verse to blokes is something to be made um, a big discussion over. It is a very foolish way to understand God's word. This is what God's word says to us as, as husbands. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wife. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now in the original Greek it says husbands know your wife. That's got a huge range of implications, let me tell you. Husbands, you need to know God's plan for your wife. You need to know what it is that God values in your wife. You need to know what God wants you to be like. And you need to allow God's word to shape you and your wife according to his plans and not hers. You know, husbands, do you really know your wife? And don't come up with some rubbish or trite comment that says that would never happen. Do you know her goals? Do you know her desires? Do you know her plans? Do you know her frustrations? And those things will change at different stages in your life and hers. And then do you allow your knowledge of your wife to impact how you take her needs into account as you live with her as your husband. You can't be knowing your wife and being considerate of your wife and a selfish prat at the same time. Husbands, it can be so easy for us to live for our own needs. It can be easy to fulfil our own wants and desires. And this passage calls on us as 
people who want to live in a way that honours God to be people who respect and care for and honour and focus our thinking on the preciousness of our wife. Elevate your wife. Show her intimate care. Now, the word to know your wife has, again, a huge range of meanings in which you need to be in the, in the Bible. You will need to be sensitive to her and have concern for her and honour her. As one person said, this passage to us as blokes is reminding us how hard we need to work at loving our wives so that we are worthy of our wife's submission. And blokes, there's two reasons why you need to do this. Well, you could say three. One, it's in the Bible. But two reasons are given in the Bible. Verse 7, it says your wife is the weaker partner. And guess what? This is another part of the Bible that's taken out of context and twisted to use the way that people want to. It's been used to demean your wife or to demean wives and devalue them. That's not what it's doing. There are a couple of different meanings you could have when it talks about a wife being the weaker partner. The first one is this. Across cultures and across history, blokes, generally speaking, are physically stronger than women. Now I know that there's a couple of women in this world that you might not want to meet in a dark alley. But the fact is that across history and across cultures, blokes are physically, physically stronger. That's part of God's good design, whether you like it or not. And here, husbands, is the thing you need to know. Don't ever force yourself physically on your wife. So the passage could be meaning that. I think it is. But I don't think it's just meaning that. The second way you can take that, this passage of a wife being the weaker partner is the reference to the wife as the weaker partner could be taken into account the fact that God has appointed husbands to be the head of the house. And that means, wives, that you might feel, and you are, in a weaker position of authority in the household. And husbands, you are reminded, don't ever use that authority for your own advantage. Don't abuse your stronger position of authority as the head of the house. Because your authority as the head of the house is nothing more than the authority to care and protect and to know and to honour your wife. Let me tell you one meaning that the wife being the weaker partner is definitely not saying. Wives, you are not weaker spiritually. That's one way that the passage has been twisted. And the reason why you are not weaker spiritually is that you are co-heirs with your husbands of the gracious gift of life. The passage tells us. So you're not weaker spiritually in any shape, form or description. Husbands... You are called to treat your wife in this way because verse 7 says they are the weaker partner, but it also says that if you don't, God will not listen to your prayers 
And that should wake you up. That should be a bit of a shock to read, shouldn't it? Husbands, God has promised you that if you fail to love your wife this way, then he will not listen to your prayer. Let me read to you verse 12, which we didn't read before, but it just gives you an idea of what it says a few verses later. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attentive to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Put simply, don't think that you can disobey God's instructions in your marriage and expect him to listen to your prayers. And blokes, I don't want you to rush up and tell me how many wonderful prayers God has answered for you this week, as if that's a sign that you must be the perfect husband. But take the warning seriously. Let's finish with a word for both of us, husbands and wives. I hope that we can see how radically different we should live in our marriages as God's people. Our marriages have the ability to give powerful witness to the power of the gospel, the goodness of grace and the reality of Jesus. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, 11 and 12, sorry. Because this is where this passage flows from. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. This is a passage I said before that is hugely misunderstood in our culture and our churches sometimes because we get stuck on the word submission without understanding what it means. So if you're speaking of this word in your culture, in your world, make sure you get the opportunity to unpack it. What does it mean for your marriage? You know what I think's rather ironic in this rejection of the word submission or the idea of submission is that the world that we live in loves husbands who know their wives. The world we live in loves husbands that are considerate of all their wives in a whole range of ways that I've already mentioned. You see, our culture loves safe and strong, secure marriages where women are allowed to grow and be flourish and develop just like that Proverbs 31 lady. God's way of valuing each other in marriages really is deeply attractive, isn't it? even if we're not really sure as a culture that we like the word that God's word uses to describe it because we misunderstand it. As God's people, we need to be different. We need to value each other in the way that God values us. We need to treat our spouse in the way that God calls us to. We need to live with a gospel desire to show the world that God really is worthwhile to follow. How about I pray? Our Lord and our God, we pray that your word will shape our thinking as husbands and wives. There'll be parts of it we might react against.
Lord, we might be driven by our own selfishness or maybe our hurts. We might have had this passage used against us or we may have used it against our spouses. Lord, help us to be thinking biblically. Help us to be living biblically. Help us to be honouring you in this world because that will strengthen our marriages and it will glorify your name. And as we've read today, it may well cause others to follow you as well. We particularly bring before you, Lord God, those that we know whose husbands are not converted or wives not converted. And we pray, Lord God, that our living as your people will be deeply attractive to the goodness of the gospel. We pray that your spirit might work in us so that we might obey and your spirit might work in the lives of our spouses so that they might know. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.